When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Inside the Board's Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hey everyone, it's Patrick here. This episode is a new venture, co-venture, that we're starting with Da Vinci Academy. They are um, at dviacademy.com. We are doing question dissections, long-form question dissections, which are the type of thing you're used to hearing on the Study Smarter podcast, Uh, but we'll have video recordings of them um, over on the DVI Academy platform and DaVinci Academy's YouTube channel for some of them. And then the audio will be hosted on Inside the Boards um, in our premium section of our mobile app, as well as some free offerings similar to what we do with the Study Smarter series. So the question dissections product, if you will, um, we're launching with a focus on pathology cases and health system science and ethics. I'm super excited about all the things going on at Inside the Boards. Like We are essentially relaunching this company, this project, whatever you want to call it, added new awesome team members, which we'll introduce to you soon, with the ability to do some like coaching services and uh, individual tutoring, more coming from a lot of different collaborators. We're actually kind of trying to start a, a little med ed coalition um, just to support the work of people like me and the rest of the ITB team who are trying to create things that help you uh, study on the go, uh, that help you live better lives, more balanced lives uh, in medical school and as your career progresses. I mean, it's it's really cool. I think we're going to be able to like cut costs to our audio cue bank, make things a lot easier and affordable for you guys. We are introducing an initiative, which has been important to me for a while, just to uh, have transparency so that you can uh, see essentially what we do with any of the income we get and um, how we use it for developing the business and um, supporting the people uh, who work for us. Just in general, I kind of want you guys to be involved as a community Um, and know what's going on and know that uh, if you support us monetarily, um, what that actually does. And because of your support and how much I appreciate it, just listening um, or becoming a premium member, uh, we want you to, to feel that the value you're getting is worth it, essentially. So super excited. Tutoring coming, question dissections, health system science and ethics product, Uh, Lots of other things near Horizon. 
um, like a med school planner, um, collaborations with various uh, artists to offer, you know, artworks and other merch to uh, the medical students and physician communities. I mean, it's it's sweet. So, um, so many things going on. If you want to get involved, just reach out to us, info at insidetheboards.com. And here is our pathology case, our question dissection with Da Vinci Academy's Max Cooper. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I'm Patrick Beeman, um, your occasional host, uh, founding host. I haven't been um, on the show here in a, in a little bit, but I'm back and I'm joined today by Dr. Max Cooper, who is the founder of uh, Da Vinci Academy, which is a platform that we will be telling you about. Um, and today we want to go through um, a little bit about Da Vinci Academy, some of the things we're working on together um, and then, of course, uh, at the second part of this uh, interview, we'll uh, cover a case on um, reproductive pathology. So, thanks, Patrick. Appreciate you having me on here. Absolutely. Well, thank you for uh, you know reaching out. Um, it, it's been a pleasure to you know have the conversations that we've had over the past like month or two, and and look, you have me back sitting in the. Uh, in in the studio slash my basement, which is now redone, um, so that it makes a recording environment nice and pleasant. Uh, so I will mention on that note, if you would like to see my recording setup uh, and my sweet new Zoom background, as well as more importantly this presentation, um, the video associated with it, um, just head over to Da Vinci Academy's YouTube, which is. YouTube.com slash Da Vinci Academy Med. All right, perfect. Back more to medical education. So people should go to your website to learn anatomy, histology, and biochem um, as the current offerings, right? So what is your website? So the URL is dviacademy.com. And so that's where you can find all of our, our offerings. You can find Da Vinci cases there as well. You can find there's a whole subpage developed to, devoted to the DaVinci Hour podcast with links out to all the different listening platforms. Um, and you can sign up for a free membership and, and just view some sample videos and, and PDFs from our books. Um, if you want to just take a, just kind of take a taste of what we have to offer. And then uh, you can also just follow the cases. One advantage of that is we post the cases early on our website versus the YouTube. You kind of have to wait every week. And so if you join the, the free membership program, you can get early access to the cases, which is pretty cool. Um, and then you can get each of those subjects you mentioned by themselves, or you can get combo packages where it kind of helps yourself save some money and, you know, learn more than what, if you're, you know, doing like an organ systems type, uh, uh, curriculum and you want to learn anatomy and histology together, you know, when we have some organ organization to where you can kind of easily find like the cardiac histology and the cardiac anatomy and, and kind of you know, watch those simultaneously or not simultaneously, but you know what I mean, sequentially to help, uh, you know, better your understanding of the cardiovascular system in that case. Okay. So final question, uh, Da Vinci, why, why Da Vinci is the name? I can't believe I forgot to, uh, ask that, uh, earlier. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's, I think I was the one that came up with the name. We, you know, we kicked him around a bunch of different names. Um, I just felt like Da Vinci was in, he was one of those few people that was like the master of everything. He was, <laughs> um, he, you know, was 
both good at, you know, art. He was good at medicine. He was good at anatomy. Um, I think that was probably the, the impetus for was, you know, originally started with anatomy and he's considered one of the, you know, the greatest anatomists and then illustrators as well of all time. Um, but then also we wanted to be a company that offered a diverse uh, set of things, you know, be kind of excel in multiple areas and offer, you know, quality, you know, at the end of the day, we always want to, we want to just offer things that really benefit people. Um, and so, Thankfully, we've been able to do that in multiple different ways. So trying to hold true to our our name as, as Da Vinci Academy. All right, cool. So check out Da Vinci Academy. Check out the uh, Da Vinci Academy's uh, courses that you can purchase on the website, cases on the website or YouTube, um, and uh, also audio form on uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. And then what I miss, uh, Da Vinci Hour. Um, you know, the, the interviews for learning those questions you need to ask as you progress throughout your medical career. All right. So what's a Da Vinci case? I think, uh, the idea for what these are is, is what we're going to get into now. So just kind of the format again, I think I alluded to this. So we'll have, you know, a USMLE style case, uh, with a question, obviously. So we'll go through the case. Uh, Patrick and I will, will go through it. This is a female reproductive pathology case. So Patrick's going to lend me a little bit of his expertise as well as we go through this. Um, we'll summarize the key findings. Then we'll take a minute, kind of go through one of the concepts that's relevant to the question. And then we'll come back and go through the answer choices and, and tell you why the, the right answer is right and the wrong answer is wrong. So I'll kick it off here with the first case. So a 32-year-old African-American female uh, G1P1 presents to the outpatient clinic for chronic pelvic pain and heavier menses for the past four months. So I think, you know, with this first opening line, often, you know, that's where you can deduce a lot of information. One, this is a younger woman. Um, she's African-American. Um, again, like I was saying, these questions often, their things are often put there for a reason. So you want to pay attention to race because there's you know, certain conditions that can be, you know, that certain races are at higher risk for. So you want to just keep that kind of in the back of your mind as you go through the question. Um, chronic pelvic pain and heavier menses, um, as Patrick can, can tell you, I'm sure from his, uh, his clinic experience, there's a number of things that, that can cause that. Um, but I think what's key to, you know, in any of these types of presentations to pay attention to also is the time, the, the time frame. So this isn't something that just woke her up in the middle of the night and made her come to the ER. It's also not something that's only happened for a few days. Like, so she's, she, you know, it's four months. She's been dealing with this for uh, a significant param, a significant amount of uh, time. So kind of a subacute presentation here. Um, so she gets her vitals in the clinic. They're within normal limits. Um, so that's, you know, again, she's not in, sitting in the emergency room or anything like that. So, you know, she's stable. Physical exam is notable for an enlarged mobile non-tender uterus. Um, so again, the exam, especially the, uh, gynecological exam is always important to pay attention to, cause it can give you a sense of, you know, especially on a uterine exam, if the, if the pathology is particularly affecting the uterus, um, Patrick, I don't know if you have any commentary on that. I'd be curious what, what your thoughts are. Um, definitely. I've got some things to add, but I would say let's, let's go through the case in its entirety first, and then, uh, I'll come back to it. Um, so continuing on to the labs, the labs are only notable for a hemoglobin of 9.3. So she's uh, anemic. Uh, and then a transvaginal ultrasound reveals multiple intramural, meaning that it's inside the wall of the uterus, solid hypoechoic uterine masses. 
And just uh, for the med students who maybe haven't done much radiology yet, hypoechoic on ultrasound just means that it's like less bright than the surrounding tissue around you. There's isoechoic where it would be around the same intensity. And then there's hyperechoic where it's uh, brighter than the, the surrounding tissue. Um, so it's a hypoechoic mass. And we'll come back to that, why, why that's important in a second. But um, so we have, we kind of have a sense here. This is probably, you know, the source of her, you know, both her heavier menses and then her pain as well as that these uh, masses are contributing to that. So the question is, is which of the following is the most likely etiology of this patient's pathology? So this is a classic USMLE two-part question. It assumes that you know what the diagnosis are or have, have deduced the diagnosis. And then it's asking you kind of a follow-up or a secondary question about that diagnosis. Yeah. So in that being said, let's uh, go back and kind of parse this out. So um, you know, I've always advocated, you know, like approaching each question in a standard format, whatever works for you. Um, often on the podcast, I forget to do this, but my intention is always to uh, note what the interrogative or lead-in or actual question is first, um, which here is which of the following is the most likely etiology of this patient's pathology. Um, okay, so basically, in my own words, what is that? What's causing this patient's problem? All right, so that's what I'm going to be like focused on as I then go through the vignette. Um, and now I go back and I'm looking through these sorts of, you know, pertin pertinent positives and negatives like you were drawing attention to before. And in this case, we've got, you know, like your reproductive age woman who's an African-American. Um, she's a G1P1, uh, which for... You preclinical students means she's been pregnant pregnant once and got a baby out of it. Um, she presents to an outpatient clinic for pelvic pain and heavy menses. All right, so in OBGYN land, um, pelvic pain and abnormal uterine bleeding are some of the most common complaints that we see. So the likely range of um, answers uh, or list of answers that could be causing this um, are, are pretty long uh, with just this information. Um, but we can whittle it down as we continue to go through. Uh, vitals are within normal limits. Okay, cool. So what's that mean? Well, it means uh, if uh, she's anemic, then she's not like decompensated um, because if she were significantly anemic, um, you know, then you're like missing some red blood cells, which means you're missing some oxygen carrying capacity inside your blood, uh, which means your heart rate goes up um, to kind of ensure that homeostatic delivery of oxygen to your tissues. Um, so uh, physical exam is notable for an enlarged, mobile, non-tender uterus. Okay, so a few things here. It's enlarged. Um, what can cause a, a large uterus? Um, you should be thinking about this as you go through the vignette. Uh, large uterus, um, well, you could have a hydatidiform mole, uh, molar pregnancy, which is... Um, Something that, uh, you know, if 
I don't know, you look in like a table in a, a review book um, that that lists like causes of enlarged uteri. That'll be one of them. Um, but what else? Uh, you can have uh, probably more commonly would be, or excuse me, less commonly would be like um, malignant um, conditions like a leiomyosarcoma, uh, which is a cancerous um uh, neoplastic uh, condition of uh, the uterine smooth muscle or the myometrium. Adenomyosis, which is, you can kind of think of that as like endometriosis of the uterine muscle. Uh, classically, uh, this was worth rem- remembering because it shows up in vignettes a lot. Um, the exam for somebody with adenomyosis um, usually is a boggy like a kind of like a firm but spongiest feeling. Um, a boggy uterus would be adenomyosis. Um, but, uh, all right, let me, let me pimp you. Enlarged uterus in a reproductive age female without any other information, what should you be thinking? Um, you know, there's, there's a couple things definitely, but one thing everybody forgets. Well, I would say that the initial thing you want to make sure she's not pregnant. Boom. Pregnancy. Don't forget, like many things in um, OBGYN uh, as far as pain complaints and, and you know, palpable things inside the uh, pelvis, uh, pregnancy can, you know, be a cause. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely up there. Um, whether it's an abnormal pregnancy or a normal pregnancy, doesn't matter. You got to think pregnancy as a diagnosis. Um, but the, I'm pretty sure the number one cause of an enlarged uterus is uterine leiomyomata or leiomyomas or fibroids. So if her uterus was enlarged, mobile, but tender, I would be thinking adenomyosis, which is kind of just a general enlargement. Like I said, like endometriosis of the myometrium, you can think of it like. Um, but this one's enlarged, mobile, and non-tender. Okay. So labs are only notable for a hemoglobin of 9.3. So um, what else could be said about that? Uh very often women will, their bodies will kind of um, adjust or compensate for chronic anemia. If this were a, you know, chronic blood loss anemia, um, we'd expect to see like what a normocytic or microcytic pattern. So you'd look at the mean um, corpuscular volume, less than 70 um, is microcytic. Um, or uh, you can have a normocytic anemia uh, with iron deficiency anemia, uh, which is uh, what you get with chronic blood, lo- <laughs> chronic blood loss. Um, I've even seen, honestly, people with normal vitals and a history of like heavy bleeding, like bleeding for three months straight um, with like hemoglobins of like five. And it's like, wait, what? It's like, aren't you dizzy when you stand up? No, 
Do you ever get palpitations like your heart's beating too fast or strong? No. Do you have headaches? No. (laughs) Are you short of breath? And it's just like complete negative review of systems. It's like, okay, well, the body's pretty cool. Um, But (laughs) you can't stay like this forever. Um, So you're going to need, you know, something to treat that. Um, All right. And uh, moving on. So she's mildly to moderately anemic. Uh, transvaginal ultrasound shows those intramural or inside the wall, because uh, I believe it's murus is the Latin for wall. Um, solid hypoechoic uterine masses, uh, which is a very typical description for uterine fibroids. So to return after all that long-winded uh, thinking out loud, which of the following is the most likely etiology of this patient's pathology? Well, here are your answer choices. First up is A, endometrial epithelium, B, myometrial smooth muscle, C, uterine serosa, or D, trophoblastic tissue. All right, so how do you approach these um, when you're kind of, you know, in the heat of the moment uh, on an actual exam? Yeah, I think it's, um, you got to think about the underlying pathology and you got to think about like exactly, you know, this is really getting at what the cell line is. So you want to, so sometimes it can be in the name, like adenocarcinoma is obviously going to be like an epithelial uh, thing. Um, and so you, you just have to think about, you know, just kind of know your underlying pathogenesis and where, where these tumors come from. You know, the other thing you can think about is kind of looking, I always try to look for answer choices right away that might be easy to eliminate. I'm kind of a, a crosser out you know, I like to cross things out as much as possible. So I think like we were, we were talking is, you know, like uterine serosa, there's not um, too many pathology, you know, in your explanation you were giving of all the different causes, I didn't hear too much mention of uterine serosa. So that would make me kind of a little less uh, suspicious of that. Plus like on a transvaginal ultrasound, it's going to be a little hard to see something that's, you know, protruding out from the uterine serosa. That'd be something more you'd see maybe on a CT scan or something like that. Um, trophoblastic tissue that makes me think, you know, maybe she was recently pregnant or, you know, something that would have been a result of a pregnancy and there's no mention of her being pregnant or recently uh, pregnant. I mean, obviously she has a previous pregnancy at some point, but I feel like the question has to be usually on the ESMLE, they have to be pretty, pretty direct with that kind of stuff. It's less hazy, like real life is. So I don't see too much mention. So these two right off the bat, I think it kind of comes down to these. I mean, you think inside the wall, so you could think, again, it's kind of hard to discern whether it's endometrial versus myometrial if you're kind of going off that. So again, it's kind of, it gets a little bit down to kind of if you know it or you don't in some some instances, uh, I think. But I feel like 50-50 is not, it's, it's better than 25% when you originally started with. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think what's helpful, um, so a few things about me. One, I'm a slow test taker. Um, I almost always take the full amount of time for a test. Like my first, yeah, first couple shelf exams, I like actually first three, I think I had to like guess on the last like 10 to 15 just cause I ran out of time. Also, they only give you a five minute warning at that point, which I thought was really dumb because it should be a one minute, but, uh, whatever. Um, so there's, there's that. Um, but also there's this psychological kind of, I don't know, uh, cognitive difficulty where 
you know, if this vignetted set of transvaginal ultrasound reveals multiple myometrial solid uterine masses, um, which are the following is the most likely etiology of this patient's pathology, I would have been like, oh, I can't pick B, which was the answer, myometrial smooth muscle, because they mentioned that there's a finding in the myometrium. So it's obviously not going to be that because they're trying to trick me. So they're not. That's important to remember. They are not trying to trick you. So what I found was really helpful um, and, and still do as I'm like about to like start studying for yet another exam, uh, this time for addiction, is as you go through vignettes, like anything that reflexively jumps out to you as whatever, like there's <laughs> I have no real basis for saying this, but my own experience, and that's that your mind is probably working, um, you know, in the background, as it were. Um, we just can't open up our task manager and see, like, to what degree um, our programs are still processing, except the one that's, you know, the window in front of us, our our conscious mind. But, you know, like, if I'm reading through this, I'm like, oh, okay, okay, pelvic pain and heavy menses, um, African-American female. I know that those findings are definitely fibroids. Um, and then I keep going through and it's like enlarged, mobile, non-tender. Okay. That's sounding a lot like, you know, lyomyoma, another word for fibroids. Um, anemia definitely goes with fibroids cause they can cause heavy, uh, menstrual bleeding. Um, and then this ultimate intramural solid hypoechoic uterine mass um, is is kind of a dead ringer uh, from a diagnostic radiology standpoint. So if I had got if I had not looked at the answer choices, which I highly recommend not looking at them until you can have some sort of answer to the prompt. If you don't, that's okay. But if you can come to the answer choices with a decision rather than having your decision on which answer to pick influenced by what you read, I, I bet you do better. I bet you have less moments that you're like, oh, I know they're trying to trick me, or now I'm going to like get worked up and spend five minutes on this one question. You know, these are kind of psychological things you need to work on and, and get practice with and teach yourself um, so that you, you don't get down to 50-50 with every single question because you don't have the confidence which you ought to have, if that makes sense. Um, no, I 100% agree with you. I, I try to do the same thing and answer the question in my own mind before I get to the choices, like you like similar, similar to yourself. Because then, like I said, I like to cross answer choices off. And I think if you already have the answer in your mind, that makes that process a lot easier um, as well. It's definitely reasonable, you know, to be like, okay, I think this is fibroid. And then you look at the, these answer choices and myometrial smooth muscle, you know, like a, a, a monoclonal proliferation, a benign monoclonal pro proliferation of uterine smooth muscle cells equals a fibroid. So really this is just a term synonymous with fibroid. So I'm zeroing in on that. I mean, it's probably not a bad idea to glance at the other answer choices just to make sure that you didn't miss something. Um, but if you have got to the end of a, a vignette like this and you're like, ah, I'm, I'm looking for fibroids, I'm looking for lyomyoma, 
um, and you see this uh, myometrial smooth muscle is the answer, boom, just select it, move on. I think I'll, I'll, we'll take a minute here going off that if, before we go through the answer choices and just kind of talk, you know, we talked about fibroids or a lyomyoma. Um, and so just to kind of review briefly, like Patrick was mentioning, this is a benign, usually fibroids almost always are benign, but I think as I say down here, you can have a malignant transformation into a lyomyosarcoma, but that is rare. Let me interject there. I would say that, um, the dogma has always been that, uh, Here's the thing. If you can th- like imagine it happening in the body, it probably can happen. Like uh, honestly, like some of the things like I've I've seen or or heard about that that are pathologies. <laughs> it's like what? Um, so first up, it, it's a truism. If it can happen uh, in your mind, it can probably happen in real life. But for the purposes of a medical student or somebody just at like a a basic medical education level, um, like even up through step three, I would say fibroids are benign. They don't turn into uh, cancer. And I think that's pretty reliable. But, um, you know, if somebody has a bunch of weight loss and their uterus grew, you know, three times the size within like a month and you see a finding from the radiologist that says multiple intramural um, uh, hypoechoic lesions are evidence. Like I wouldn't completely ignore the fact that she's got some cancer symptoms. Um, so just throwing that out there. For sure. No, thank you. Um, and then the presentation, we've, we certainly covered that, but you know, as Patrick can attest, sometimes these are even asymptomatic. And even as a radiologist, we see these all the time, like just incidentally on people's CT scans, like abdominal pelvis CTs. I believe it's 70% of women have at least one. Oh, really? It's that high? Okay. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I, I, I guess that doesn't surprise me. I mean, we, we see these all the time, like when we read abdomen and pelvis CTs, especially, um, you know, look, you know, and they're just incidentals heavy vaginal bleeding and or pelvic pain. So they can have one or the other or both like our patient does. Um, the exam is, you know, Patrick explained very well earlier, you know, enlarged can be asymmetric, non-tender. Um, you can have palpable masses, but um, again, you're always going to just eventually get the ultrasound to kind of confirm that. Uh, again, like I was saying, race can be important. It's common in African-American women. And the age range is kind of, you know, very young women to kind of up to middle age. But that being said, you know, as Patrick can attest, this can happen in, you know, people of, of all ages. Again, if you can, if you can think it happens or if you can conceive it, it probably can happen. So you can see women, you know, much older than this. And I imagine even younger than this uh, happening. Another thing that's important is it's estrogen sensitive. So you can have the size increase during pregnancy. Um, it can also decrease after menopause, again, just corresponding. And then this is just a nice image. Those three watching the video, you know, it just kind of shows the position of the fibroids within, you know, the intramural, you know, portion of the uterus with, you know, kind of a right, giving you a kind of that visual sense of how it arises from the, the smooth muscle of the, of the myometrium. And you can, and also I think what this image shows well is you, you know, often women can have more than one and, you can see them in all, all different types of locations. And uh, as I think we'll talk about at the end here, I'm curious to talk with Patrick about the, kind of the treatment aspect of this at the end here, but you know, these can get very large and cause, make these symptoms even much, much worse, which kind of rely either the OB-GYN or even in our case, the interventional radiologist to, to intervene. Um, so I think that we'll, we can get back to that in a second. Let's just uh, finish out this question here. So coming back to this, we'll go through the answer choices again. So 
Um, endometrial epithelium, you know, endometrial carcinoma or adenomyosis, as Patrick was talking about, can rely, arise from the epithelium itself. Um, also, the thing about cancer, especially endometrial carcinoma, is it's usually, again, anything's possible, but it's, you know, common things being common. It's usually more common in older women, you know, over the age of 55. And I would, I would even say uh, more simply just postmenopausal. Um, yeah, the uh, average age is 51 for menopause, but, but um, just an, an associated thing to remember as a principle for every specialty um, is postmenopausal bleeding um, is always endometrial cancer until proven otherwise. It's not usually endometrial cancer. Uh, it's usually actually like a loss of estrogen and atrophy of the, you know, robust, um, uh, tissue health, um, either vaginally or endometrially, um, but, uh, like a loss of estrogen, but, uh, at the same time, it's, it's important enough. And that's the usual presentation for endometrial cancer or endometrial precancer or hyperplasia is postmenopausal bleeding. Um, so remember that that's definitely going to show up on your exams over the years. Yeah, no, I can, I can attest to that. It's recently doing step three. It was on there. <laughs> yep. Um, so like we said, the answer is myometrial smooth muscle. Cause like I would, you know, I showed on the previous slide, it's, you know, a, uh, uh neoplasm that arises from the, the myometrial smooth muscle. Um, and then uterine serosa, like we said, not too many, you know, uh, masses that typically originate from there. You can have peritoneal carcinomatosis, which is basically like kind of sprinkling of malignant tissue throughout the peritoneum, which obviously comes in contact with uh, the uterus. And then can be a, a number of things like uh, ovarian cancer. And then also obviously can be other cancers as well from within the abdominal or pelvic cavities. Um, then you have trophoblastic tissue, kind of like what I was alluding to earlier. This would, this should uh, trigger in your mind, a choreal carcinoma, which arises from trophoblasts during or after pregnancy. These ones, you're going to see beta HCGs elevated in these patients typically. Um, and so again, like we were saying that, you know, this would be if, if they said the patient was pregnant or had just been pregnant and then, you know, their beta HCG was still through the roof, um, that could have maybe tipped you off towards more towards that answer there. Yeah. Um, trying to think, uh, what's, uh, what other pearls, um, fibroids at least, um, you, you should know it is the most common tumor in females. Um, that's probably worth remembering. Um, the thing about size increase with pregnancy and size decrease with menopause, that's just a general rule. Um, so don't be too fussed if you're on an OBGYN rotation and real life doesn't seem to match that. Um, it's not always uh, the case or uh, not simply the case that because then people will get confused like, wait, they have heavy bleeding and there's fibroids and you gave them, um, you know, estrogen, progesterone in the form of uh, oral contraceptive pills. Like, isn't that going to increase the size of the uh, fibroid? And the answer is no, it usually usually doesn't. But it's not as simple uh, physiologically or pathophysiologically as, as size increases with um, estrogen. Um, it just tends to be that way. I think management could be interesting to talk about, which is a little bit maybe beyond step one, but 
I think, uh, you know, definitely there's different from your end, there's different surgical procedures that can be done for this. Um, and then there's a pretty slick endovascular procedure from our end that can be done for this as well. Um, hysterectomy, obviously the most invasive. Um, and then, you know, there's the myomectomy, uh, which is, which is well, which from what I understand is, is done, especially if you're trying to preserve fertility. Is it, is that right, Patrick? Yes. Yep. That would be the uh, go-to indication for that. Um, and myomectomy is simply like removal of the uh, fibroid tumor itself. So for first year, you know, second year preclinical students, um, you can basically treat the symptoms by giving them medications that will help decrease the bleeding um, or giving, you know, suggesting some pain meds uh, if they have pain. Um, but if you're at a point where, for instance, it's so large that they're having trouble having bowel movements, um, I've seen these things like um, cause hydronephrosis, like cause the kidneys essentially to, to back up um, because they're compressing the ureters. Um, you know, people can have uh, difficulty, you know, with uh, sexual function and intercourse or bladder uh, function because I mean these mass effects. Uh, it's once you're in, it's all the anatomy. Yeah, it's like you have a uterus, and when it's too large, it touches all these things and can cause the the problems related there too. But usually, once you're at that point, like where you you're you know bodily functions, normal functions are affected, then you're moving on to something more invasive. Um, more and more nowadays, the, you know, I think the go-to thing is probably something in the radiology suite uh, because it's less invasive. Um, you don't just usually cut them out, like, for a couple of reasons. One, they're often multiple. Um, you know, there's there's many of them. Um if you have one like big solitary one, that's, you know, a better uh, situation to just remove the uh, tumor itself. Um, if you do have a, you know, uh, you do a myomectomy and remove the fibroid, um, that will make the uterine wall weaker. And so if somebody gets pregnant after that, you don't really want them to go into labor. This is more like probably third year, fourth year, maybe even more like OB resident. Um, but you don't want them to go into labor. It's it's sort of the situation like a VBAC, like if you've had multiple C-sections, that uterine wall gets weak and it can open up and burst during labor, which creates an emergency. Um, and you can remove the uh, uterus as a whole, which is probably the more common surgical uh, approach that we take. Um, there's a lot of different things you can do, um, but what about you guys? What can you do? Yeah. So this is, this is a really exciting aspect of, of interventional radiology and, you know, it's uh, endovascular, minimally invasive. Like you said, endovascular just simply means, you know, navigating catheters and wires through the vessels, endo inside vascular vessel. 
And it's similar to like a cardiac cath as far as access. You know, you can either go through the femoral artery and the groin, or you can go through the radial artery and the wrist. That's kind of attending dependent and even institution here at Emory. We, we do actually a fair amount of these through the radial artery. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's some of them. Yeah. Some of our, many of our attendees were trained at some of the similar places. So I think that has something to do with it, but again, I think it's preference. They radial artery, it's a little cleaner, you know, there's not like the groin there's, there's more like, you know, flora down there and stuff like that. And, um, it's just also like patient comfort as well. Um, so yeah, so we do, we typically do them through radial artery here, maybe different at, at your institution. Um, but then we navigate using fluoroscopy or basically kind of real-time x-rays, if you will, um, and contrast dye and kind of do an angiogram to navigate the, the blood vessels for the fibroid. It's pretty wild. Like when you see these things, it, you know, you see the complex vasculature of these, of these fibroids. And then basically we thread a catheter through the, the vessel through that. When we've kind of located the, the feeder vessel, the vessel mainly supplying one of these fibroids and then deploy different, uh, essentially beads that kind of block off the vessel. It's called an embolization. So you basically block off, kind of clot off that blood vessel and just essentially kill the blood supply to the fibroid. And the thought is that, you know, as a result of that, it kind of dies down and quits, you know, acting up and giving, giving the, the patient, uh, you know, the issues that it's, that it's causing, whether that's, you know, mass compression or, you know, heavy pain or bleeding. Um, and the results have been pretty, pretty good. We, the patient satisfaction is pretty, pretty high with these procedures. And, and thankfully it's, it's pretty minimally invasive, which is, and usually it's an outpatient procedure it can be done, you know, in the IR suite, the patient goes home the same day, usually, and it can be done with moderate sedation, even you don't necessarily even need anesthesia. So we're, we're happy to help these patients in, in interventional radiology. Yeah. So, um, you can, um, do a uterine artery embolization for this too, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's that typically the older approach. Yeah. Yeah. And then as we've gotten a little bit better with, uh, just our imaging and, and techniques, we can navigate down to some of those more finer vessels that supply these things. Yeah. That used to blow my mind though. Like how can you embolize the uterus and it not die? Um, so that would vex me. It doesn't have to vex you. There's, you know, a lot of collateral circulation, but in the case where you do a uterine artery embolization rather than a specific fibro uterine fibroid embolization, um, the I, the idea is that the blood flow, I guess, you know, is is significantly lessened, and um, the fibroid itself. Um, doesn't take as much blood supply as the uterus as a whole. So those collaterals end up, you know, diverting to the organ itself rather than the, um, uh, fibroid or, or something of that, that nature. Um, but, but yes, you can embolize the uterine artery, um, and the uterus will still survive. Um, probably shouldn't get pregnant and there's some other things. Um, but, it is possible. Just throwing that out there. Yeah. Yeah. And we're doing the same thing in males now too, for uh BPH, like benign prostatic. So prostate really? artery. Yeah. Pro that's the kind of the new hot thing in, in males is kind of taking this exact, because this was done Principle. first. Yeah. Taking yeah this, exactly. That makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. And that, I mean, yeah, the prostate surgery is fraught with a lot more, um, morbidity. Um, right. Like I think, uh, I can't remember some of the statistics, but um, 
So yeah, like 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 a erectile dysfunction and and things like, like that. Yeah, I think uh, ED was like a, a relatively large portion. I'm not gonna say what because I don't exactly remember, but you know, you disrupt that like uh, nerve plexus, and and then you know stuff just doesn't communicate to uh, down there. But um, you don't see that so much, do you know? With prostate uh, artery, no, it's definitely. I mean, I think it theoretically could happen, but I think it's, it's much less than, like you said, if you're, if you're surgically removing it. Um, so there's, there's this big push and we, in IR, we kind of face the the problem of letting people know that we actually, you know, we, we have solutions for some of these, these issues yeah. that in many cases can be, you know, good solutions or even potentially less invasive and less complicated uh, solutions as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Something to think about. It's one of those questions that you probably kind of covered the Da Vinci Hour uh, show as well, because if I'm wanting to go into OBGYN and and become like an expert uh, uh, fibroid surgeon, um, and then the IR people are developing non or less invasive, you know, like minimally invasive or more minimally invasive, because we can also do minimally invasive surgery, um, but very minimally invasive procedures to treat some GYN conditions, you know, that will have an impact on the availability of those surgeries. And that's a good thing because, you know, the less you do to a patient to solve their problem, the least invasive to the most invasive is uh, always should be the principle. But cool. I'm interested in that prostate thing now. Definitely. As I get older, I know that like a hundred percent of us will eventually, uh, if we live long enough, develop um, some BPH or or even prostate cancer. So at least I, I don't have to go through a transurethral resection of the prostate when I'm uh, however old that happens to people. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got anything else here? No, I think I think that's it. We covered. Full gamut, I think, on this one for uterine fibroids, which is which is pretty cool. I enjoyed that. Yeah, me too. I'm glad I uh, I learned something here too. That's that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right, so coming soon, um, we'll be doing probably some more terse. What what's the plan? We're doing like gonna aim for like sixty pathology cases. Yeah, um, I think something like that. Yeah, like yeah. The final yeah. numbers being determined, but yeah, a, a sizable portion that will be useful for people for sure. Yeah. So uh, go check out uh, dviacademy.com and, you know, see what Da Vinci Academy is doing. We'll be back uh, with more next time um, to help you learn on the go. Um, Thanks for listening as always. And, you know, if you have a chance, go review Max's uh, podcast, uh, Da Vinci Hour, because it's always helpful for shows Uh, to get reviews, and uh, I will do that too, actually. I have not yet. Hold me to it. I will do the same for you, and and I'll add that uh, for your listeners, we'll give it a nice discount code as well. If they want to are inclined to buy one of our products, they can use the discount code ITB20 and get a 20% discount off of anything we offer, so feel free to use that. Well, thank you. We do appreciate it, so. All right. I'll talk to you later. Awesome. Thank you.